I mean, this is Tariya Seva from Copenhagen. Guru Priya, his wife, and Kamala. Kamala from London. Guru Priya from Poland. Shamsundar from Italy. <laughs> Vrindaranya from the United States. Naveen is a friend of Ram Prashad. Naveen is from, actually from Mathura, Rajapasi, when he went to working in Bangalore in the computer industry. ISKCON has a big, big temple in Bangalore, and so they have a good outreach program, and many young, intelligent people have been captured by that. But at the same time, as you all have your own experience and know, ISKCON, while clearing a certain level of confusion, for the general conditioned soul, tends to generate another type of confusion afterwards, which is more difficult <laughs> sometimes to remove. So Ram Prashad was under that kind of confusion when he contacted me, and I've been able to help him. So he naturally shared that with his roommates. And Naveen was in America all this time, but he was getting some emails from them. Now they have all converted over, so to speak, Ram Prashad will take Diksha from me. Hemant also, I assume, others, Rakesh, and if others also taking this Diksha from Narasimha Maharaj. I encouraged Ram Prashad to go to Narasimha Maharaj's mock, which is about maybe two hours from Bangalore, I think, in Mysore, Shirangapatnam. They went there and got good association. Then they invited Maharaj second time, you know. First he went two, three times. Ram Prashad, he had more questions and doubts, and I answered his questions and sent him back there to Nishinga Marsh again and again. And then Nishinga Marsh said, why don't you invite us to come to Bangalore for a program? So he said, well, I will think about it. Then he wrote me an email. Marsh, program was nice. He asked if he can come. I did not say yes or no because I'm a little afraid. If he comes, we have a program, then Iskand will be upset with me. <laughs> what should I do? He asked. So I told him, be intelligent and don't do something that will cause you to go down. Because through my counsel, he's going up, but still he's going to the temple and he has some support there, some structure that is giving him some support. There is deity and kirtan and so forth. So if he takes my advice, but simply separates entirely from opportunity for kirtan and seeing the deity and so forth, then maybe he will go down. So he has to be intelligent, I told him, and think about it. But I also said, but sometime you have to stand up and say what you really feel. And when you start to do that, then you'll really get some strength. So I think he took some courage from that. So he invited Maharaj to come. They had a big program, maybe 100, 150 people came. He wrote me about it and Narasimha Maharaj also wrote. So now he was one confused person. Last he told me, he said, now we are six <laughs> unconfused and preaching. Now you are a seventh. <laughs> Maybe there's more. Anyway, we're happy that you're here and we will try to help you. So what were your questions? Uh, my questions are simple in nature. My first question was that India is supposed to be a spiritual and more sattvic than what West is or what America is. But on the what I found contrary that while I was in say America, in general, I find that people are more honest, there is less corruption, though they are violating all the poor regulatory principles. On the other hand, in India, people are, I mean, that's more sarcastic. I mean, a lot of them are following actually the regulatory principles. 
and then it's also known as a holy land. But here there is a so much of corruption, so much of people are dishonest and crime and all those things. And materially also India is very backward and on it is or on it in general best is forward. So how to understand this and being spiritually forward and being spiritually a better land where people are not so good. <laughs> you know what is existentialism? In uh, Western philosophy, at a certain period, many thinkers came out and expressed what appeared to be non-theistic or atheistic ideologies. Even like Karl Marx, you heard of Karl Marx, of course. So he espoused the communist doctrine. It's considered to be an atheistic doctrine. But if you look very carefully at most of these people, you'll find that the core of their thinking are very noble thoughts of ideal society, equality, and advocacy of self-searching, introspection. All of these things have something to do with real, experiential, spiritual life. They were, many of them, critics of the church and were thus labeled atheistic. But in reality, many of them were more spiritual in their thinking than those attached simply to the mechanical, ritualistic practices of the church that they were going on with without thinking deeply about changing their lives. So, what is religious, what is spiritual, little difficult really to understand. We have to look very deeply and see even beyond what we think is formally spiritual or religious, oftentimes to find the real core of spirituality. Following certain practices and so forth, persons can do and can be irreligious. A Hindu person may come to the temple, offer fruits, flowers to Srimurti, pay dandavat, and say some praise, but in his heart he's desiring something material. Mother Jashoda, on the other hand, is chasing Krishna with a stick to beat him, to tie him up. One man is offering flowers very nicely and praise, and she's calling him, name you, rascal, come here. I will grab you and tie you and chastise you. But her heart is full of love for Krishna. Krishna's accepting her chastisement and surrendering to that. Overtly, it looks offensive. She's going to beat God. Another man overtly looks like he's offering very nicely something. But what is in the heart, that is all important, not the externals. So it may even be that we may find someone who doesn't follow the regulative principles, that they may be more spiritual than someone that does. On the highest level, we may find that. Param Vaishnav, at some point, you can see the whole world and all sensual opportunities as opportunities to satisfy the senses of God. And he may be, or she may be, in apparently indulging in all types of sense activities, even those that are considered in general to be illicit or improper, but doing it with a certain consciousness that constitutes love of God. Therefore, we find sometimes in Chaitanya Charitamrita, Gorlila, devotees' activities are very extraordinary. 
who is the guru of Karadhar Pandit, Pundarik Vidyanidhi. And he was living like a materialistic man, smoking hookah. He came to Navadweep on a palanquin, smoking and dressed in a very fancy way, not like a vairagi, tyagi, sadhu. Mukunda told Mukunda was a nice devotee, and Garadhar was a nice devotee, Vaishnav. So Mukunda said, a great Vaishnav is coming today to Nadia. You come with me and we'll go and see him. When he went to see him, Garadhar in his mind thought, what is this Vaishnav? He looks like a materialist. Mukunda could understand the mind of Garadhar, so to save him from making offense, he chanted one sloka from Srimad Bhagavatam, Oho Bhakiyam Stanakalakutam. He sang the song of Uddhav, praising the mercy of Krishna, of all the gods and goddesses in existence. Who is more worthy of taking shelter of than Krishna? Who, when approached by Putana with poison smeared on her breast, such a heinous thing. If today we read in a newspaper, one nurse came to take care of the child, put poison on her breast, and gave the breast to the child to poison him. What more heinous act could there be? Krishna's in complete innocence, only three months old, disguised as a mother, as a nurse, well-wisher. She desired to poison him. But what happened to her? She got mukti like Mother Jashoda. So Uddhava was so intelligent. He was the counselor of Krishna in Dwarka. Krishna needed any advice, then Uddhava would be called. Very, very learned, most learned person in Dwarka. In Dwarka, then, they know all the Vedas, Upanishads. So he said this thing, gives more weight to it. Who is more worthy of taking shelter of than Krishna, who did this? This is our God. Mukunda chanted this verse because he knew when Pundarik hears this, his ecstasy will come out. He won't be able to check it. So he sang that song. Who is Pundarik? Pundarik Vidyaniti is in Krishna Lila. He is the father of Sri Radha, an appropriate guru in Gaur Lila for Garadhar. Garadhar is Radha in Gaur Lila. So when he sang the song, Pundarik Vidyaniti went into ecstasy, fell off the palanquin, and so many sattvikabhavas manifest in this person. And Gadadha could understand, oh, he's a great Vaishnava. I have made an offense. He went to Mahaprabhu and asked what to do. Mahaprabhu said, you have to go and take diksha from him. So he did that. So sometimes on a high level, then there are Vaishnavas who we cannot recognize. Because we don't understand Vaishnavism that well. We have a very simplistic, basic idea of what is Vaishnavism. We fit into a particular box and follow a particular set of rules. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and then pop, you come out Krishna conscious. It's not exactly like that. What we think Krishna consciousness is now, a later stage, we may be thinking just the opposite. Now you are taught to think that Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead, right? But our hope is that someday you will forget about that and not think that Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. And like here in Braj, real Brajpasi, <laughs> does not think that Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Uddhava might think like that. But when he came to Braj and saw the condition of Gopis, Nanda and Jashoda, he understood my thinking about Krishna as the Supreme God. That is not as high as their thinking. That causes them to forget the Godhood of Krishna and causes Krishna to forget his own 
godhood in love. So we've entered into a very big topic when we enter into Gaudiya Vaishnavism. We have to be a little open-minded, ready to learn. We have to be in the language of Siddharmarsh, in the disposition of a student forever. So, as it is true that on such a high level, someone may be perfectly Krishna conscious, but appear to be otherwise. On a lower level also, it's possible that someone may have more spiritual sensibility, be more honest person, more introspective person, even though they may be lacking certain knowledge, like from Veda. As you say, they may not be following the principles. So that may be also a little superficial. Someone can be following the principles very nicely, but not be introspective at all. What we want is to combine the two, follow the principles and be very introspective and thoughtful, honest, kind-hearted, not uh, overcome various biases. Like India is a very biased country in many respects. What you say is very true, very dishonest at large, very uh, backward in many ways, even. America is very forward in many ways. Our Guru Maharaj was frustrated with India, Prabhupada. He tried to preach Mahaprabhu's mission in India and he found that the response was not very favorable. He went to America, he found the response was very favorable. And at some point he said, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has said, Bharat Bhumite Hoyla Manusya Janmajar Janmasarta Kodikar Parupakar. You know it. For the people of Bharat, Bharat Bhumite Hoyla Manusya, who is Manusya Janma, born as a human being in Bharat, should learn about what is the message of Srimad Bhagavatam and do Parupakar, supreme welfare work, preach Krishna consciousness. But Agumar said, now this has been transferred to Americans, Western people, he said. <laughs> this is a, was the leading country in the world, he went there. Actually, Bhaktisiddhanta Sastri Thakur used to often say, I wish that my life would be extended for 10 years that I could preach in America. At that time, England was the leading country of the world. But he had some vision, Bhaktisiddhanta Sastri Thakur, of... America's dominance, preeminence coming in the future. So he had a desire and he expressed it. Sridhar Maharaj told us, and he got that wish fulfilled. Ten years plus two through his Sisha, Bhaktivedanta Swami Maharaj. Sridhar Maharaj considered that Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthitakur lived another twelve years in Prabhupada's preaching in America. And, as I say, Prabhupada considered this order of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has been transferred to the Western people. And then, only when they brought it back to India did it have the kind of impact that enabled temples like Bangalore Temple to be built. Actually, the main temples in that time were Mayapur, Vrindavan, and Bombay, Hyderabad also. Those three were the main ones. So, God moves in uh, different ways. Kujmal Nilmani says, Love moves in a crooked way, like a snake, not in a straight line. Sometimes over here, sometimes over there. If Krishna says, I'm over here, come here. We go over there. Make great effort and trouble to go there. Arriving there, he says, I'm over here now. Then we have to go there. 
and back to the other side if he calls. He cannot complain. So the nature of love is like that. Love is not moving in a straight line. Radha is arguing with Krishna. Apparently, she's very upset with Krishna. I don't want to see Krishna. I don't want to hear his name. Don't mention that fellow to me. These are all expressions of love. Outwardly, they look the opposite. So we have to look very deeply if we want to understand what is spiritual life. And in a basic sense, like I began, even some of these so-called atheistic philosophers and thinkers, they are actually more spiritual than the church that they critiqued and the church that labeled them as atheistic. And we hear a little something that they said, and then we think, oh, they are great atheists. But actually, they were they probably took birth in uh, good families <laughs> in India <laughs> in their next life, became devotees. <laughs> so India is also still pious land, and still many devotees are coming from here. The general populace is quite dishonest, but still there are many like you, Ram Prashad and others, young men, young women, educated, but they don't want to go to the West. I met so many Indian young men in my years of preaching in India, and they all want to go to the West. They will join a mission, follow regulative principles, <laughs> do all kinds of sacrifices, two, three, four, five-year plan, only to get a visa, disguising their desire for a visa with all type of devotional activities. So when they get the visa, they go to America, they forget about Krishna. I had an idea, and I communicated it to Ram Prashad. Ram Prashad asked me, Maharaj, what to do? I would like to live as a brahmachari in Amat. Although I don't know if I'm qualified, I'm thinking that marriage would just be a distraction. But I'm the eldest son, and I'm taking care of the family. I have a younger son. If I work a few years, I can put him through school. So I advised him, don't be a crazy fellow. If you really want to be Brahmachari and a Vaishnav, you should not be impetuous and rash, and your faith should be such that you can remain in your present situation, deal responsibly with your material obligations, and when the door of opportunity opens, you can go through. Mahaprabhu advised Raghunath Das Goswami like that. And if your f enthusiasm is so shallow that you cannot remain in that situation, then what kind of enthusiasm is that? Then how you will maintain and flourish in monastic life? So I advised him like that, and I gave him a plan. Work for two, three years, put your brother through school, and you stay in touch with me. I will advise you. And if after that time, then you're still feeling like this, then you can come and go in that direction for monastic life. So he liked that advice. And then after some time I wrote him, he had asked me after a couple of months of preaching to him if I would give him initiation. I told him, I will think about it. He continued to follow my advice, and at one point I wrote to him and I suggested, I have an idea for you. You are working, you need to raise some money for your family, and you want to also practice Krishna consciousness. So why don't you come to America in San Francisco? I'm living nearby San Francisco in my ashram. And you can work here in the computer industry. You can have one house. Some of the devotees from 
this area in computer field can also come. And you can make much more money than you can make in India. And you can meet the needs of your family. You can give some money to the ashram for publishing. And we can have a little preaching center. I suggested this to him. So he wrote back, said, Maharaj, you have a very good idea. I like it very much, but I have to say that I'm very afraid to come to America. And I have no interest in learning any new programming in computer industry. I'm simply hanging on here, trying to do this job with no enthusiasm for it whatsoever. And to come and do an interview to get a job, I will have to study and learn some new things. And I have no enthusiasm for it whatsoever. All my enthusiasm is only for practicing, hearing, chanting, preaching. So he wrote me like this, and please you forgive me, don't take any offense. I will do what you like, but honestly, that's how I'm feeling. So I wrote him back, I said, yes, I will give you initiation. You understand? <laughs> I was very happy to see that. So you are also a nice young man. You have been to America, you are from India, and you don't have any desire to stay there. You could have stayed longer and got a much better job, but you felt that you had no association with devotees, no good association, and you thought that was more important. So there are some good people in India. <laughs> and those of you who are good people in India, who are interested in following the practices and thinking about the purpose of following them and the meaning, you should stand up and set an example for the rest of your countrymen. And then India can do what that great historian Arnold Toynbee, you know, he was a great historian, he said, in the next century, India will become the predominant country in the world. So I've thought about it, and I reasoned that it cannot be by advancement in technology, science, and so forth, but by the science of Krishna consciousness, as Prabhupada used to call it, by dharma. If they will take to the dharma, prema dharma of Mahaprabhu, nam dharma, nam sankirtan, then they can actually lead the world. Prabhupada used to tell us that you boys and girls are 100 feet from Krishna and Indians are only 10 feet from Krishna. But the difference is, Indians are looking the other way and you are looking towards Krishna. <laughs> so if we can get Indians to look towards Krishna, then so much we can spread the Dharma of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. That is the theory. Now, persons like you, you have to put that theory into practice, make it realized. Does that answer your question at all? I don't have many more doubts, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think it's quite a word to what I was thinking so far. What were you thinking so far? It's basically that I have so far that India is better place for the spiritual life. And actually that I felt also when I was there that there were some vibrations or whatever thing that I felt like I had much more in my mind. In America? Yeah. And yeah. or anything was much more difficult. And as soon as I came back here, I felt a lot of relief just because of being here. And it was much more easy. Yes, it is a more pious place. But if people don't take advantage of it, then that is not the fault of the place. Perlad was a great bhakta, but he was born in the family of demons. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's mission 
the question sometimes arises, why all of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's associates, they were not born in Navadvip? Navadvip and Vrindavan are the same. Mahaprabhu descended, he was born in Navadvip. All of his associates came, but they were not all born in Navadvip, like that Pundarik in another place, some out of Gorabandalabhumi, Gopal Bhatta in South India, and so forth. So what is the answer? Because Mahaprabhu wanted to spread his mission of Braj Bhakti, Namsan Kirtan everywhere. So he arranged for them to be born in different places outside of the Dham. So the extension of this further is that devotees are being born in America and Europe and Japan, other places as well for spreading Krishna consciousness. India is the most pious place, therefore we're coming here. We also feel the same way. We're coming from Poland and Copenhagen and London and America to come to Vrindavan. Not only Vrindavan, India. Before coming here, we were in San Francisco and we went into an Indian grocery store to get some things. Brindaranya said, oh, every time I go into Indian grocery store, I feel like I've gone into India. And it's so enlivening. <laughs> so, yes, it is a better atmosphere. No doubt. But, unfortunately, people are not taking advantage. And those introspective, thoughtful people in America that aren't practicing, they don't have much knowledge, but still they have some good heart, they're honest and so forth, if they can meet a proper representation of Gaudiya Vaishnavism in the field of their heart, that will flourish. Also, in a pious place, we have good opportunity. But if we abuse a good opportunity, just like in Vrindavan, it is said, if you practice devotional life in Vrindavan, you can make so much advancement. But if you make offense here, then just the opposite. So, with the opportunity for good association, good environment, also comes the opportunity to abuse that. So, so many people have abused, therefore India is in a condition that it's in. But it is, in many respects, a very favorable environment. In America, we can create a favorable environment by preaching very strongly, only. Or if we get a remote location, peaceful location, then we can replicate the atmosphere of the Holy Dham to some extent, establishing the deity there and so forth. Otherwise, yes, Bart, India is a pious place. But your question is why people don't take advantage of it. Yes, people are going against You're looking for a good reason but it's based on poor reasoning. More important than the place, what makes the place pious? What makes India a pious place, or any place pious, is that saintly persons are residing there. If you go to the holy place, but you don't take advantage of the saintly persons, then you haven't really gone there. There's another way to think of it. They are in India, but they are not taking advantage of what it is that makes India an auspicious place saintly persons residing there and speaking Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam. So you can come, Narottam Thakur says, you can come to the holy place. Bhagavatam says, you can go to the holy place, but if you don't hear from a saint, then you haven't really gone there. Just like, you can go to the moon, but if you go, as Prabhupada said, in a spacesuit, you never get out of the earth's atmosphere, then you never really went there. So people may be living on the surface of India, but not taking advantage of what it is that makes it a pious place hearing from saintly persons. Prahlad got a very bad birth, but he got association of Narada Muni. 
he became a great devotee. We may get a very good birth, but not take advantage of good association and spoil it. Thing is, you have to look and see what is the, the reality. If you find people from another place that are more pious in an impious place, and you find more impious persons in a pious place, what will you do? You cannot just deny it. <laughs> you have to accept it. Such thing happens. And in relation to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's mission, I have explained for a good reason. Prabhupada was very critical of this. They're born in Brahmin family, but how are they acting? Many things also in someone's background. Karma is very complicated. Someone may be born in a good family, but not be able to take advantage of good association because of two things in the past. Something pious they've done, something impious. We find people, they come to Gaudiya Vaishnavism, and they're always around it, but they cannot take advantage of it. Why is that? Because they may have some background of Vaishnava Parad. So they get to take birth, and they become interested in devotees. They're always around the temple, but they can never join, they can never take advantage, because they have some Vaishnava Parad in their background. So this way, with karma, and then in relation to bhakti, offense, so many things can cloud the picture. For one reason they may get a good birth, but for another reason they may not be able to take advantage of it. But you should take advantage of it. In other words, the doubts you have should not stop you from going forward. That is the main thing. <laughs> Say more. More doubts. <laughs> yeah, another one was uh, that many times I read in Margaret and other places that say uh, that we are taking bath in Ganga, all of your sins are washed. And if we read this particular chapter of Krishna, even I have read, read in Prabhupada's contribution, then you read Bhakti. And I mean, there are lots of things like which seem to be very unreal. They are like, there are to be a, too much of exaggeration that anybody will say, like, anybody will go commit a Vaishnava Pradam, Vajra Brahmana, and take Sakam, like, Tulsi, and his sins, he will feel all the sins. Similar things. Or just by reading Tulsim and all these things. Like, I'm not able to understand these things. Like, they seem like two simple measures mm-hmm. to cover two big offenses. Mm-hmm. So your question is that in the scripture, many things are mentioned that if you do this, a wonderful thing will happen. If you simply see once the chariot of Jagannath, then you will get a liberation. Yes. Right? Yes, so many statements are there. One thing is, Shastra takes a license to exaggerate. The license to exaggerate is for the purpose of getting people involved. Just like in preaching, then we may exaggerate, we may say so many things in order that people will come in closer and get involved. Because we know if somehow or other they get involved, that will be good for them. So Puranas in general exaggerate for the sake of the common people, that common people will perform these activities. At the same time, in relation to bhakti, so many things are mentioned in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Rupa Goswami cites from Bhagavat and other Puranas in relation to bhakti. But he also says, he tells us how to understand this. It is not that these things will happen to everyone who does them every time, but 
they have happened to people and therefore the potential for them to happen is there. So he's citing an example from the scripture, so-and-so saw, did such and such, and got liberation. So he's only teaching us that such potential is there in bhakti. Therefore we should approach it, try to embrace it. But he also advises, but not that every time for every person this will happen. So it's a little tricky. Whosoever leaves this yeah, yeah, and then people will read and take advantage, and and they will get in due course. But that is the very standard for preaching. We say sometimes that siddhanta and preaching are not always the same. Prabhupada used to give the example: if my child will not take medicine, but needs medicine, I can say, "You take this candy. Take your medicine. I will give you candy." Takes the medicine, and you don't give the candy because the candy is not good. Then you've exaggerated or you've lied, but the child will be cured by taking the medicine. Do you understand? So the scripture also speaks like this for common people to get them involved. But we are also taught that that which is said about Nam is not exaggeration. So we should have full faith in all statements about Harinam. Even by Nam Abhas, you can get liberation. But we should not be so encouraged by that. because We don't want liberation. <laughs> we want Prem. Once chanting, one can eradicate more sins than one can commit. But then we will also think, but what is once chanting? That is in reference to Shudhanam, not once chanting Namaparad. So the statements are general, they appeal to the general class of people, but if we look more closely at them, and inside of them, there are many more details. Bhakti has two sides. She's most exalted, post-liberated status, and most generous, extending herself to the most unqualified people, the irreligious people even. So while she extends herself to the irreligious, she sounds very generous. Oh, just chant and be happy. But eventually we realize if we do that, we will just chant and be unhappy. We'll be unhappy that my chanting is only namaparad, and I'm not going anywhere by this, practically. So we should chant and cry that I cannot chant purely. And then when you chant purely, then you will cry still. As gopis are crying, great devotees are crying. So chant and be unhappy. <laughs> that is the real message. But first it sounds, chant and be happy. And the real one says, it sounds good. <laughs> chant and be happy. But the real message is chant and be unhappy. And then inside that unhappiness is great happiness. So, just like in preaching, we cannot tell everybody everything at the same time. Little bit, little bit, as they come forward, then we can tell more. If we tell you in the beginning, bhakti is very, very rare, sudulabha, very, very rare and difficult to attain bhava bhakti. Then people will say, I'm not interested in that. Anything else I can do? <laughs> so, we grow up like that, just try to be happy, that is all. If the man, he said, is drinking wine, then let him drink the wine and chant from Bhagavad Gita. Rasoham apsukuntaya. The taste in the wine is Krishna. Then he will become Krishna conscious, drinking wine. So these are generous statements. Also, you should understand that great devotees, Mahajans, great Mahatmas, they also see differently than we do. What they see is the great power and potential in bhakti. And they see that in comparison to that, the power of Maya's influence, of material desire on us, 
is very insignificant. We are in the clutches of those desires, so it's difficult for us to see like that. But they see is very near to you, Krishna Prem. It is actually very near to you, just beneath the surface. They tend to minimize the surface, which takes such precedence in our mind. But they minimize that because they know the power of bhakti, the power of Nam Prabhu. They look at us and see us in terms of our potential and speak from that vantage point. And so it sounds sometimes unrealistic to us or an exaggeration. But the fact of the matter is that our material conditioning has no roots. It's just on the surface. It can be swept away. Maybe you take one life, two lives, three lifetimes. But for one who's living in eternity, with one, two, three lifetimes, it is insignificant. He knows she has taken it up. She will get it. He will get it. So who sees like that and knows what it is, thinks from that vantage point about it. Mukunda, devotee of Mahaprabhu, what did he do? He made some offense. Mahaprabhu banished him from his company. And after some time, the devotees went to see him. What was his condition? They were feeling mortified for him. And they spoke with him. He said, when you go back to see Mahaprabhu, ask him when I will again get his association. So they went back to Mahaprabhu. They said, we have been with Mukunda. What does he want? Oh, Mahaprabhu, he only wants to know one thing. What is that? When he will again get your association. Mahaprabhu said, tell him that for one million lifetimes. Oh, they were shocked. Now they had to go and deliver this message to Mukunda. <laughs> they went, they saw Mukunda. Mukunda said, what did Mahaprabhu say? Said, oh, they hung their heads, not for a million lifetimes. What did Mukunda do? He began to dance. They were astonished. How oh, are you dancing? Mahaprabhu said, not for a million lifetimes. He said, I will get, I will get his association. That's all I wanted to know. What is a million lifetimes? They went back to Mahaprabhu. Mahaprabhu said, what did he say? <laughs> he loves his devotee. They said he began to dance. Mahaprabhu said, bring him here immediately. <laughs> so, what is a few lifetimes? If we will get Krishna Prem, Braj Prem, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's association, and one who knows that, then they speak in these ways to us. Sounds to us exaggerated. Yes, take Harinam. He will go back to God very quickly. His life, why not? Prabhupada is thinking. So we should try to have a broader vision. We live in a very small frame of reference, frame of reference of our mind and senses. Same persons that try to bring us out of that. In good company, with sadhu, we should feel two things. One, oh, how fallen I am. And simultaneously, two, what great potential I have. No <laughs> doubt. This is about uh, cosmology, even in Bhagavad cosmology. Hmm. Now, the way it is written in Bhagavatam is very different from what we perceive from our senses now, or what the science has perceived through some of these instruments, or at least what we see, the moon or the sun or the hmm. stars. Now, a couple of things I know that the moon is part of some sun. Hmm. Like, 
and some uh, some other interpretation I got was it's more than three dimension was I read book Vedic astronomy. So these things. But my question was that if whatever a perception is, why it is described in a different name, I don't know. And we can't see in that maybe it is in four dimensions and we only see three dimensions, so maybe it is some other geometry. But when we can't perceive it, why things are described in that way in Bhagavatam? Because totally what it results is that people start disbelieving. They say that Bhagavatam says like this, like this, this is not true. Science says like this, we can perceive like this. What is the motive behind that? You see, the Bhagavatam is not a book about cosmology. That's not what it's about. That's the first point you have to understand. It's not about that. It's about loving Krishna. It's a book about feeling, real feeling, love for God. At the same time, it is couched in a Puranic setting. It deals with, apparently, many different issues, while in reality, dealing with only one. Bhagavatam has a conclusion. It has a single message, and it presents that message from so many different angles. This is the main point. And if we can get the kind of feeling that Bhagavatam is advocating, then our life will be successful. If that results in seeing the world, as Sukadeva Goswami described it, then we will have to conclude that this kind of feeling that Bhagavatam is speaking about turns our world upside down, turns things inside out. Siddhar Maharaj once commented when asked, Bhagavatam says the sun is closer than moon. He said, yes, you can think. Because the sun has greater influence on earth in our lives than the moon, in that sense, by feeling, it is closer. And moon may be physically closer, but actually it has less influence. Therefore, it is at a greater distance. Do you understand? Now you may think, what Bhagavatam is saying? So many miles, so many yojanas, and so forth. Bhaktivinoda Thakur dealt with this issue in a different way. Are you familiar with that? In the scripture, many things are discussed. One thing is the truth, Siddhanta, and then there are other relative things that are mentioned. So we have to learn to differentiate between that which is relative, social, historical, and that which is spiritual. That which is social and historical and so forth, the spiritual is couched in that. And we have to extract what is the spiritual and then relate to that which is social and historical appropriately, which means those are relative things. They can be adjusted. Bhaktivinoda Thakur spoke about Bhagavatam and this issue. He said we can accept if nowadays people are seeing in another way, and this is accepted, and there's some evidence for this, well, we can accept it. And when that changes, then we can also change with that. When they have new perceptions, new findings, and so forth. This does not inhibit our faith in Bhagavatam and its message. Because its message is couched in a particular historical setting and sense of social norms at a particular time, what has actually happened in history, that our perception of that, our understanding of that may change. In Vedic times, people had a certain way of perceiving the world, the cosmology. Now we may have another means of perceiving it, and maybe it's more accurate. All right, that doesn't change the message of Bhagavatam. This is how Bhaktivinoda Thakur dealt with this in terms of preaching to the modern society. He did not allow those things to get in the way. That is not the message of Bhagavatam. The message of Bhagavatam is not moon is closer than sun. That's not what it's teaching. That whole section of Bhagavatam, we have to look inside for why that chapter is there. What is the theology? 
And on this point, many people have become confused. They're taking some relative aspect of the scripture as absolute, then trying to make convince the whole world of this. And it's going to be very difficult to convince a modern person of such things. Also, this section of Bhagavatam, sometimes it is considered that it is there in order to get rid of people who are not that interested. Do you understand? To test them. If they are more bent on understanding things through their sense perception, then they have no standing in the Bhagavat Dharma. First message in one sense of Bhagavatam is that our senses are imperfect. So Prabhupada used to push on this side. Whether sun is closer or moon is closer is not the point. And although it appeared that Prabhupada was concerned with that, what he was really concerned with was displacing our faith in sense perception and the power of reasoning by stressing the defective nature of these things. If one cannot swallow that, then how will we go on in bhakti? If after swallowing that and being ready to believe anything and taking Harinam and making progress and advancing, then we can go back and look at some of these things with a rational, critical mind and see them for what they are, to some extent, relative. You understand? My understanding was that since scriptures are given by God, God is very tricky. Everything should be correct and absolute there. Everything is. Everything is correct and absolute. But what is the message? What is the teaching? You see, scriptures are actually revealed to the rishis, and then they explain them, write them down. But they live in a particular setting, so they will speak of it through the particular cultural setting that they find themselves in. Therefore, that immediately brings a relative aspect to the scripture as well. I gave an example to the devotees the other day. Bhaktivinoda Thakur commented, in Vishnu Purana, there is a statement that every meal should be ended with something bitter. He said, this proves that the scripture spoken by the rishis, revealed the truth and then spoken by the rishis, has a cultural filter that it is coming through. And we have to, in good company, sort that out. In other words, it's not the absolute truth that God says every meal should be ended with something bitter. And if you don't do that, then you're deviating from the scripture. Do you understand? Rather, it indicates that the truth comes and then is expressed through a particular cultural filter. Just like Prabhupada said, he compared scripture to law books, right? So when we hear, there's a law, then we think, oh, this, everything is very exact. But anyone who thinks about it a little further understands that law books are such that according to time and circumstance, they are to be interpreted and the law is to be understood. So from a very strict, confining conception of scripture, if we look closely, we move to a very broad conception of what the scripture is speaking about. What is the topic of scripture? It is the absolute. How can it be contained in words? Therefore, Bhaktivinoda Thakur said every book has its shortcoming. And he said that while speaking about the Bhagavatam. We cannot say enough about Krishna. Cannot be confined to words. The philosophy even of a Chintabeda Beda Tattva of Mahaprabhu, it is a... If we go to the land of faith, 
and experience and then come back to this world to speak about it. We cannot adequately describe it. That is the whole idea of Vrindavan. Shrutibir Vibhigyam. The learned Uddhav said, this place is beyond the Shruti. Scripture is pointing in the direction, like kind of a road map, generally pointing in the direction. It doesn't tell the whole story. We get some divine experience, faith, we come back to the world of doubt, we have to try to explain it, so there's some limitation. Therefore, the purpose of the scripture is to inspire us to practice, take up those things by which we can know by going, not by reading the book. And therefore, scripture should also be heard in association of saintly persons, so that we can go to the essence of the scripture. Because it's vast and so many topics are there, we can get distracted. Our tendency as a conditioned Badajiv is, even while coming into the heart of the absolute truth, being drawn in by a saintly person, our tendency is to gravitate towards the outside of that. Because we have a sensual and mental intellectual orientation at the present time. So when they try to draw us in, we're attracted by hearing the heart of it. We come in, but then gravitate towards the outside of it. Then we get caught up with this external or that external. And we see this all the time happening with devotees. They're concerned about so much. Scripture says this, Scripture says that. And, <laughs> and they're arguing about these superficial points. They're distracted only. They are speaking something so conservative while citing a person who was so liberal. Do you know how liberal Prabhupada was? <laughs> he came from Bengal culture, Calcutta. In that setting, if you are to place Prabhupada, he's such a liberal. Now, when we look at him, he seemed very conservative in our modern society. But actually, he was a flaming liberal person. He shocked his god-brothers. Shocked them by allowing women to serve the deity women to live in the ashram, to cook for him. would speak women, even that he would take something cooked by the men who were his disciples. Many of his godbrothers could not appreciate it. Scripture can only tell us so much, but good company with sadhu can tell us so much more, just by observing, even if we are astute and attentive by listening with our heart, with a desire to change our life for the better, then we can make so much progress. Prabhupada was a great liberal person because he was carrying the Mahavadana of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Nityananda Prabhu. Yes, he said, women are less intelligent. He learned it in a Scottish church school, something like that in Bengal. Prabhupada's message to the world is not that women are less intelligent than men. That is not what he's teaching. He's teaching universal message of love of God and the highest love of God, what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came to give. But still, as liberal and open-minded as he is, as he must be to be a messenger of such a doctrine, so accommodating, still it is coming through some cultural filter. If Prabhupada gets certain information, they think like this on the moon, then he would say, then tell them that, then tell them this, then tell them this. He had certain information that he was given about America, what it was like. He knew the core issue. What is the problem with America? 
and India and the whole universe with so many details. If he was concerned with all of those, how could he have the time to give the message of love of God? So based on certain information, he would respond in a particular way and say something. Did we find devotees grabbing onto the literal thing that he said and missing the spirit of Prabhupada, the spirit of Mahaprabhu and love of God? So we have to be Sargrahi Vaishnav, essence seeking Vaishnav, not Barabahi, who carries a heavy burden on his head of limited conception. Bhaktivinotaka said, when I go into the church of the Catholics, the Christians, or the Muslims, I see, oh, they're worshipping my God, Krishna, with a different name in a different way, with different rituals. This is a Saragrahi Vaishnav. When we say, even Karl Marx was actually speaking about spirituality with limited knowledge. This is a very broad kind of vision. We have to gravitate towards that, but we gravitate towards a very narrow vision. Then we get caught up on various details, relative aspects of Scripture that are the absolute truth filtered through a particular cultural, historical setting and filter. So we need good company to sort that out, gravitate towards the heart of it. That's how we should understand these aspects of Bhagavatam. Otherwise, I'll tell you frankly, I cannot tell you if the sun is closer than the moon. I don't know. And I don't care. <laughs> and I love Srimad Bhagavatam <laughs> and its message. And Prabhupada insisted, sun was physically closer than the moon. And Bhaktivinoda Thakur took the liberty to speak about it in the opposite way. Sridhar spoke about it in the middle of both ways. So these are my gurus. These are our gurus. Our Guru Parampara. So we find they take the liberty to speak about it in different ways. Then we, we can understand it can be thought about in different ways, considered in different ways. And which way will be best for us? Whichever way enables us to grab the essence of Bhagavatam and make spiritual progress. That's how we have to think about it. Bhagavatam's message is not about the material cosmology. It's about Krishna Loka. Goloka. You want to know cosmology? We say all the Lokas are in Krishna Loka. They are all in one place. All lokas mean all planes of consciousness. They are all in Goloka. If all Vaikuntha is in that van, Vrindavan, all whatever religious conception, all possible thought, this is the source of all thinking. Jajatamam prapadyante tamsatayabhajamyam. Everyone is following Krishna. Krishna loka, Goloka. Such a broad, broad conception. But we hear about it and then we want to make it very narrow, confine it. This is our conditioned nature. Maya means to measure, so we want to measure and evaluate and bring Krishna consciousness in the fist of our intellect and imprison it there. But it will not succumb to that. So the message of Krishna consciousness of Bhagavatam is to explode our mind so that we can get free from that, come out of the small world of the mind. So it may save many things from many angles to do that. Here, take this. The sun is closer than moon. It is a bashing of the intellect by which we would look at it in a different way if we were left to our intellect alone. This is one way to understand it. Because Bhagavatam's message is telling us only by faith can we go there, not by intellect. In fact, if we try to go there by our intellect, we will be repulsed. It is a land of faith, but if we try to go there with something other than faith, then the people of that land will reject us. We'll end up with doubt only. So what is the most important for us, for spiritual progress, is to have good company of advanced devotees. And 
if we have good company of advanced devotees, we can feel such devotees they feel for us. All their explanations we cannot understand, perhaps. But we have some feeling. They care about me more than I care about myself. Therefore, I will follow them. By doing that, we find a new way of knowing. In love, one knows. There's a kind of knowing that's inside of loving, that's automatic and satisfying. It's the kind of sense of knowing that tells us it's not important to know so many things. What's important is to love. Love means there's no reason to the world. We want a reason for everything, but there's no meaning to life. It sounds very foreign for someone in my position to say. There's no meaning to life. But if life is about love, the whole world is about love, Vedanta Sutra says. What is the meaning of love? It is beyond reason. Love knows no reason, say in English. So we have to think a little bit along these lines and keep good company. But it will be difficult because, again, we want to have it all written down. And in the beginning, we need to get some handle on everything. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. This is Krishna consciousness. Now I know it. Okay. <laughs> then if we made that advanced devotee, all our thinking would be shattered. We feel like, I'm lost now. I was thinking like this. The meaning of this verse was this. But he's giving an entirely different meaning. So it's a little disconcerting. But at the same time, a little comforting. Because what interest we have in something that we can arrest in the prison of our mind? After a while, we lose interest in that. But if we have good company, as a result of that, we come to know, oh, we come to feel insecure. I don't know what this is about. It's beyond me. Then the potential of rejecting it is minimized considerably. Because even though we don't understand it, it's beyond us. We have a sense that it's good for us. It feels good. We are taught that you should not eat meat. Certainly you shouldn't serve it to others, right? Bhakti Sananda Saraswati Thakur was prepared to serve meat in Mayapur to Western people in a hostel in order that they would feel comfortable because they're meat eaters to hear about Krishna consciousness from him. When Prabhupada heard that and Sridharmarsh heard that, they were both there. They were shocked. What? And Bhakti Sananda Saraswati Thakur replied to them, you have to have Bhakuntavriti in the mind. He said, I thought about this for 200 lifetimes. I'm prepared to do this to spread Krishna consciousness. This is very radical thinking, isn't it? Our Acharya has conceived like this. So, Prabhupada, also so revolutionary, the things he did. And he could have done it entirely different. He could have done it in an entirely different way. It could have been one way, it could have been another way. There's relativity in that. That's the way actually he ran his movement, not as if everything was set in stone. But he felt, I have given holy name to some disciples. Let the holy name lead us. When his disciples said, I think we should have a temple in London. Prabhupada took it. Krishna wants a temple in London. Okay, go there. This is the way Prabhupada was actually running his movement. Certain people now, some of his followers, so-called the Hebbid, whole different conception, but he had it all figured out. He was omniscient, he knew everything, made a whole plan on paper. Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur had a disciple from Germany, and he was a good organizer, as the Germans are good at that. And when Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur would want to have some festival, some program, then he would tell this gentleman. But it was always without much warning. So once he told Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, Guru Maharaj, if you could give us a little more warning 
ahead of time, a few days, a week or two, when we could make better preparations. And he replied, as soon as I'm finding out about it, I'm telling you. As soon as it comes to me, I'm giving it to you. <laughs> Krishna wants it now, he's telling me, I'm telling you. So Prabhupada was following Krishna when he was spreading his mission. Who is Krishna? Krishna is the one who turns everything upside down. From Vrindavan, everything is turned upside down in Vrindavan. All religion, dharma, everything. So confusing, isn't it? For a pious person, they would rather worship Ram than Krishna. In India, Ram is more popular because Ram is so much easier to understand. Krishna turns the whole Veda upside down. If you love Krishna, then you may see the moon closer than the sun. Whole world upside down. That is the idea. That is the purpose of Srimad Bhagavatam. So we, in good company, we can gravitate towards the essence of this. Otherwise, we read so many books. We have no guru, no guide. What will we understand from Bhagavatam? It is right, Prabhupada's purport is there. Some things we will understand, but I see so much confusion is there. And the reason is why? With not having a good company of sadhu to understand the import, the practical application, the heart of the scripture. They're going on debating how to teach the world, the sun is closer than the moon, how to understand, and can't finish chanting japa. Or chanting 16 rounds, but cannot concentrate on one name even. 16 rounds of namaparad for 25 years. And the result is, concerned about sun and closer to moon, and convincing the world that women are less intelligent. This is Krishna consciousness. I realize that's an exaggeration, but <laughs> just to make the point. So we are not that kind of group. We want real thinking people with a big heart and to preach Gaudi Vaishnavism in such a way that it will have the dignity it deserves in the modern society. If I go to the modern thinkers in the West to try to convince them sun is closer than moon, what is the purpose of that? What will be the value of that? Why should I trouble myself? I don't have to do that to convince them that Krishna is beautiful and, and all lovable and attractive. If at time Bhagavatam was written down, that was useful, fine. If at this time it is not, we don't have to deal with that issue. And especially when I find other acharyas are dealing with it in a different way. Prabhupada dealt with it in a particular way, at a particular time and circumstance. He wanted to create a particular effect. He got it. Now, 30 years or so later, time and circumstance is very different. We don't have to emphasize in the same way to get the same result. In fact, we may get opposite result. People may think we are backward. Now we live in a postmodern society. Even the leading thinkers of the world don't think that modern science is the solution to all of human problems. There was a time when the leading thinkers of the world thought that. Prabhupada came from that background also, so he wanted to attack that. In postmodern times, it's accepted. Modern science is not the solution to all of man's problems and women's problems. At the same time, People think that, oh, there's some truth in science. And there is. Scripture doesn't tell us that we should throw out reasoning. Where do we find that? Jiva Goswami doesn't teach reasoning has no value. Only listen to the Shastra and throw out your reasoning. We are called in Scripture to apply our reasoning to the Shastra, not to do away with it. And above and beyond everything else, we are called to listen to the Shastra here, the Shastra from saintly persons. If we're too much concerned about moon and sun, we may end up on the moon and sun rather than in Krishna Loka. <laughs> yeah.
and there is no sun in Krishna Loka, and there is sun there also. This sun, this moon, Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, that cannot shed light on Krishna Loka. Sun predominates over eyes. It means with eyes you cannot see Krishna Loka. Moon predominates over mind. Mind you cannot see. Neither fire means by any of these aspects of the cosmos that correspond with our senses, we cannot penetrate into that land of no return. That dham of mine cannot be accessed by these things. We have to go in another way, with faith. Who has faith? If we associate with that person, we will get faith. For home-going, there is a home-knowing person is required. Same time, there is also sun and moon in Krishna Loka. They are all devotees, for the sake of the Leela. But not this sun, not this moon. And there, moon is closer. <laughs> but moonlight, the essence of Krishna Leela, goes on. The moon is closer, not by sun. Everything backwards there. Here we think when the sun rises early in the morning, it is auspicious. Rise. Sun has come. We will practice spiritual life. Brahma Muhurta. In Golok Vrindavan, what do the gopis think? At Brahma Muhurta, it is the worst time. <laughs> Krishna and Radha will have to be separated and go to their own homes. And because they're attached to Radha, they feel her pain of separation. So, Krishna Loka, Braj Dham, this idea of religion is meant to turn everything upside down. So we should be prepared for that. So maybe it is. Sun is closer than moon. It says in Bhagavatam, sun is closer than moon. Sukadev said. So, someone like Sataputta, you read his book, Cosmology, I guess. He can give some explanation, multi-dimensions and so many things. It only goes so far. That is the point. What I'm speaking, that will go much further to a rational person. What do we want to do? We want to present this to rational people. You're not going to convince people. You're not going to be able to demonstrate that, prove that. No, isn't it like Maya for Prabhupada said there should be a, some Vedic cosmology institute to on that? What Prabhupada wanted in Mayapur was to build a big temple to glorify Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. The idea for that temple came from Sridhar Maharaj. The original idea of the temple Prabhupada got from Sridhar Maharaj, whom Prabhupada considered his Siksha Guru, was to build a temple that demonstrated Brihat Bhagavatamritam. Sanatana Goswami Prabhu's book that explains Srimad Bhagavatam. Brihat Bhagavatamrita is the first book of our Sampradaya, Gaudi Sampradaya, by Sanatana Goswami, Tika and Bhagavatam. Have you ever read it? Brihat Bhagavatamrita? Some of you have read it. The story of Gopu Kumar describes the gradation of theistic experience from Karma Mishra Bhakti, Jnana Mishra Bhakti, Brahma, Shiva, to Parlad, Shuddha Bhakti, and Parlad to Hanuman, Hanuman to Pandavas, to Jadus, Dwaraka, all the way to Gopis in Vrindavan, in Braj, all the locals of Bhagavatam. This was the original idea of this temple, to demonstrate on different levels the gradation of theism given in Srimad Bhagavatam, reaching to the zenith that Mahaprabhu came to give. When Prabhupada tried to pass it down to his disciples, over time they became preoccupied with the fifth canto only. The temple is not built and it's 30 years later and they're still discussing about a fifth canto. When will they ever go to even Prahlad, even Shiva, Gyan Mishra Bhakti? 
in their understanding. Temple of understanding. Understanding what? Temple of misunderstanding. This is what Prabhupada initially wanted. This was the initial idea. So many things have changed. So many things have been distorted and and that is the condition of ISKCON today. I want to demonstrate to the world in Mayapur that the sun is closer than the moon. And so what? What if everybody agrees? Does that mean they will now love Krishna? Because they heard it in the Bhagavatam? Maybe they think they will have faith in Bhagavatam now. Oh, is it giving it? But the, the fact of the matter is, as I said, there are so many relative things there. So I, they are missing the point. And therefore, it's not, it is after multi-million dollar organization and having to build that thing for 30 years. I think the idea has become a little bit watered down. I'm not privy to everything that Prabhupada said about it, but I know the origins of the conception. And I also heard Prabhupada talk about it, Krishna Loka at the top. You see also, if the Guru has disciples, he wants to tell them something, and they keep coming to him and misinterpreting it, after a while you're going to get frustrated. You say, yeah, do it like that. Okay. They constantly want to bring it down. You can't try to bring them up genuinely, but you may think, all right, that's also good. Okay, do it like that. That will also be good. But it may not be his first preference. I have experience like that. You try to tell them one thing again and again. After a while, you get frustrated. You say, all right, we'll do it the other way then. But I want to preach vegetarianism. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, do that. That's also good. Then do it. We should have a temple that shows the whole world. What is their conception of the world? Only the mundane jagat, the universe. They're preoccupied with that. So, they start. Maybe the idea is to start with the material world and go from there, higher. They just stayed in the fifth cano. Couldn't find their way out of the material world. The temple is not built. And then they will build something. And the acharya is sadaputta. And so the theory will be multidimensional. And you're an educated person and you say, that only goes so far. You've not convinced me. And you spend $100 million to build a big temple. <laughs> I could find a better way to use that money and fulfill Prabhupada's desire. You see, you need thinking people who understand the essence of this, to apply this, to say, I don't care what Prabhupada said, I say this. Knowing that if you do this, what Prabhupada wanted to accomplish by saying that will be accomplished. In Kanishta Adhikari, you can only say, oh, Prabhupada said this, Prabhupada said this, Prabhupada. But what did Prabhupada mean? What did Prabhupada mean? At that time, he said like this. But what was his purpose? If we're going to send his purpose, in a different time we may say, do the opposite and we will accomplish that purpose. But the Kanishtha Kari Kari would say, oh, you're saying different than Prabhupada. This is not good company. That kind of company will not help us make progress. What did Prabhupada want? He wanted a temple, amongst other things. He did want a temple in Mayapur. that The whole world would come to, and it would be a beacon for Krishna consciousness. But as I say, if the whole world comes there, and it's just an elaborate explanation of modern science is the biggest demon in the world, and everything they say is wrong and backwards, and even if you give some good reasoning, it only goes so far, as I said, and people will say, okay, oh, that's interesting. That's what that cult thinks. Okay, it's not going to capture their heart. What does the average person think? The average person thinks, okay, sun is further than the moon. You convince them that this old book, it actually says that the sun is closer. And now I prove it to you, that this book was right. Okay, now I'm ready for the next. Now prove to me that Krishna is the supreme personality of Godhead. You do that too? Can you prove that? How will you prove that? Prove that Krishna walked on the earth 5,000 years ago. Is that the next challenge now? 
you're going to prove that to the scientific community? How will we prove that? If I convince you that Bhagavatam was right, it said the sun is closer than the moon. If it doesn't convince you that Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead, that you should give your heart to him, who cares? Amongst the average people, who cares if the sun is closer or moon is closer? Do you think the average person, it matters? If they came out in the newspaper, science has discovered the sun is closer than the moon, I'm telling you, at least 50% of the people wouldn't even bother to read the article. They're interested in something else. How to make money, feed their family, whatever it is. They wouldn't even care. Now, if at a certain point, someone like Prabhupada was thinking, we can convince like this, and so many people will shift in this direction. So let's push on this. Then it might be a reasonable strategy. But Prabhupada also told us, use your American intelligence to spread Krishna consciousness. You know, he was saying, what these people are really thinking. I don't know, and I don't want to know. I know they're in Maya, but I don't want to know all the things they think about. I don't have time for that. You use your intelligence. You know what they think. You're from that country. You know all the details of that. So you don't have to waste time to find it out. You already know it. So with your own intelligence, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get them to love Krishna. Take what I'm basically trying to do and, and use your intelligence to give it to them. Real preacher has to take that kind of license. That's what preaching is. According to time and circumstance, one has to make adjustment. Details have to be adjusted. So the principle will be delivered and realized. Am I making sense to you? Yes. Absolutely. Trying to take it to another level, I think that is uh, the point. What else? Okay. Isi bhakti vidant sami prabhat ki jai bhakti rakshakshirati goswami maharaj ki jai bhakti sadam sarasti tapu prabhat ki jai kor bhakta vrindaki jai kor premanandi